How does, how's that? We'll ju- just work on that, but bring it down a little bit more, John. I think that still sounds pretty loud to me. Ken's saying, yeah. So if that sounds loud, okay, is that better? How's that? How's that look on the gauges up there? You okay? All right. Begin with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's amazing how many people do not understand the simple procedure that if we uh, confess, admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, we're instantly forgiven. Not only of those sins we remember and we confess, but of any sin that we were not aware of, there was a sin or that we have forgotten about, we're completely cleansed. The slate is wiped clean and we're ready to move forward in the spiritual life. We're filled with the Holy Spirit and we can then move forward learning the Word of God and applying it in our lives. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for the grace that you have given us, that you have decided from eternity past that your policy in dealing with the human race would be your grace, not on the basis of anything that we do, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of our morality, not on the basis of our righteousness, not on the basis of our, of our desires and hopes, but on the basis of your character and the work of Jesus Christ. And that alone is the ground of our relationship with you. You have done it all. Jesus paid the price in full. And Father, we need to orient our lives to that all-important principle of your grace, that we might realize that all that we have and all that we do is based upon what you have provided for us. And only as we orient to your grace can we then move forward in the spiritual life on the basis of, of humility rather than arrogance, and that we can see how you have worked. We've put our focus on your character and who you are rather than on the details of life so that whatever adversities we face, we can resolve them, we can handle them and solve those situations and move forward in the strength of your grace. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks since uh, we studied in James 1, and before that it was a couple of weeks because I was out of town. Last week I was fortunate that the timing of my illness coincided with George being here so that I did not have to uh, come in here and infect everybody. I was running a fever. That's just about the only reason I won't come in is and teach as if I happen to be ill enough and run a fever because I don't want to infect everybody else with it, even though there may have been <clears throat> one or two people here who are the cause of infecting me. But we won't mention any names tonight. We will give those people the privacy of their priesthood, and they'll just have to rebound a little more. <laughs> James chapter 1, let's review where we are. James 1.1, we have the introduction to the epistle, which rapidly goes into the first command, the first imperative in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
I take it the more that I study this book, that this particular command is the overarching command of everything that James is going to say in this epistle. Everything else that he says will help us to understand how we can count it joy when we encounter various trials. Verse 3 tells us the why, why we can count it all joy. And there we have a causal or an adverbial participle of cause because we know something. We know a particular principle that the testing of faith produces endurance. And this is the growth process that God has established from eternity past for the spiritual life. That involves testing. First of all, we learn doctrine, LD. We learn doctrine. That doctrine is then stored in our soul as epinosis doctrine. And God then puts us through various tests. These are opportunities to apply that doctrine. These situations come up. They involve both adversity and prosperity. And in the midst of those tests, we get the opportunity to apply doctrine. So that the word faith there has both an active and passive sense. This is very important to understand. That often when we think of faith, we think of it in just that active sense of the faith rest drill. Trusting God. Putting into practice the act of of, uh, trusting Him to supply our needs. But there's also a passive sense which focuses on what is believed or the doctrine that we believe. So that the tests of faith are not only opportunities for us to trust God through the faith rest drill, but to put into practice the doctrine that we have learned and is stored in our souls. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So there's the test, then we apply doctrine. We apply doctrine and that continues to produce persistence or endurance. Persistence. As we persist in the Christian life and endure, that strengthens our soul. And that in turn leads to maturity. So this is the process that we must go through. There's no other way to do this. Yesterday, I went to uh, see Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen that yet or not. That is a wonderful movie. Great opportunity for you to go and and see that, I think it, it's a remarkable tribute to the valor and the courage of the uh, men in the World War II generation who uh, fought all over the world in order to preserve our liberties and our freedoms. There was one particular scene in the movie that brought back some memories to me from an episode in college, and, and I was talking with my friend uh, Colonel Ingram, who's an active-duty Marine officer who was visiting here this last weekend, and it involved a situation where you have um, the uh, main character, main officer has his patrol unit, and one of the men just says, I'm fed up, I don't want to go, I don't know why we're going on this mission, I'm just going to quit, I'm going to go back. Well, how do you handle that in terms of leadership? Now, there are a variety of different ways that you might handle that kind of situation. Some may diffuse the situation, as took place in, in, uh, in the movie, the officer in command was able to use a very interesting approach just to diffuse the situation so that the guy went, well, okay, I won't go back, and he just continued with them. But that's a tough situation, and and, um, 
uh, Dan had faced that when he was a young uh, first lieutenant, had faced that in reality in a mission when he was in the Philippines and somebody just wanted to quit. I don't care. You don't know where we are. We're lost. I'm going to go back. And he had to handle that. Now, as we talked about that this morning over coffee and while we were taking our morning constitutional walk, I related that to the whole concept of knowing the will of God and tests of faith. See, so often we get the impression that we talk about the will of God for our lives, that this circle would describe the various options that might be available to us in any decision-making process. And there's just one option, one decision, and that's defined for us sometimes as the will of God. And sometimes we feel like we're trying to find a needle in a haystack because we want to know, what is God's will? I'm going through this situation. I've got some decisions to make. I'm encountering adversity from this quarter. And I have to make some decisions. Maybe you've lost a job or or it's a health problem or or a marital problem, whatever it might be. What exactly is the will of God? As I talked about it, I said, We have to understand this. It occurred to me years ago when I was in ROTC in college, we had these FTX problems like this where they would go out and in the woods behind our military science building, they would set up certain teaching lanes. They would set you up here. You would have a patrol unit of five people, and you would be picked as a patrol leader, and you would take that patrol down that that trail. And some kind of situation was going to take place as you went down that trail. And I remember the situation that hit me was this same kind of situation. All of a sudden, uh, one of the men in the unit just threw his weapon down and just went nuts and said, I'm tired of this, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going back, and started to run off through the woods. And in the scenario around the patrol, we just couldn't let that happen. And it was my decision, and the test was, how am I going to handle that kind of a problem? Now, there's no one correct answer just as the situation in the movie and real life, there may be five or six different ways you can diffuse that situation that you can handle it and resolve it without it blowing up into something uh, terrible and something that would destroy your mission and keep you from accomplishing your objective. Then there may be, and these will put up here an R is the right answer, then there may be a number of things that are clearly wrong ways to handle the, uh, the situation. But the test... It's not that you're going to pick one right way as opposed to any of the wrong ways, but to see if you're going to solve it with any solutions that do, in fact, diffuse the the, uh, situation and give you an opportunity to take all the information you've learned back here in the classroom about leadership and small unit tactics and apply them to a real-life situation. That's how God deals with us in many, many situations. There's not just one particular answer. There's not just one particular way to do it. Now, many times there are, but if you define this outer circle as fulfilling all the mandates of Scripture, you have mandates to count it all joy, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in every situation, to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Many, many other passages that clearly define the will of God in terms of mandates, that if you're fulfilling those commands, you're fulfilling those mandates, then there may be X, Y, Z options that you can take 
in that situation. There's not just necessarily one thing, but you, you may have some creative solutions, all of which are applying various doctrines that you know, and are cons- all of which are consistent with the will of God. Just as in a real-life situation, in that leadership situation, um, the, the leader of the patrol had to make a decision, how am I going to handle this? He could have done a number of dif- different things. He could have shot the guy for desertion. He could have uh, uh, jumped him and had one of the other men hold him under gunpoint and wrestle him to the ground. They could have tied him up. You know, a lot of different options are available. But which options are going to be successful in fulfilling all the mandates of leadership and whatever? So when we encounter various tests of faith... In the spiritual life, the issue is how are you going to apply the things that you have learned in Bible class and the doctrines you've stored in your soul, the promises that you know. You hit these tests of doctrine, and if you handle them by the application of doctrine rather than relying upon your own effort, your own human viewpoint, then you move up in this direction. The production is under the filling of the Holy Spirit. You produce divine good. It leads to a quality of life. Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give life abundantly. And then it provides evidence of the, of the goodness of God, Romans 12.2. That in turn produces steadfast endurance and leads to the adult spiritual life. The opposite goes through, is under the power of the sin nature, produces sin, human good, and temporal death. It leads to further spiritual weakness and instability. Uh, spiritual regression and a hardened heart and can eventually lead to the sin unto death. Now, this is the theme that James is laying out in this first chapter. So, we have the production, the process, through tests of our faith. That produces endurance, and endurance leads to maturity. But if you don't know how to handle the particular test, there's a solution in verse 5, and that is through prayer. And the focus there is on prayer through utilization of the faith rest drill. And there is a contrast here between the person who prays fully trusting God and the person who doubts. The person who doubts is the person who uses something other than the stress busters or the problem-solving devices that God has given us. And we have seen that God has provided, we can extract from Scripture, ten stress busters. These are problem-solving devices that God has provided for the believer so that we can face any adversity in life, any situation, any problem, any difficulty. We can handle them exclusively in the power of God the Holy Spirit so that we can grow towards spiritual maturity. Now, if we come along and we try to take doctrine on the one hand, and add some human viewpoint to it, such as psychology or human philosophies or or human effort, then we wipe it out. Faith plus anything equals nothing. Absolutely destroys faith. And that's the whole principle here that the Scriptures tell us that the person who asks in faith, uh, But let him ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts. That is, if you're adding anything to your faith, if you're not trusting in Christ alone and in the Scriptures alone, the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of God's Word alone for the solution to your problems in life, then you are categorically, by definition, a doubter. And as a doubter, the Bible says you are unstable. This is the beginning of your definition of what makes somebody unstable. 
too often we think they're unstable once they reach a certain level of, of erratic behavior. But that's not God's definition of emotional instability or spiritual instability. It is doubting, adding anything to the sufficiency of Christ, trying to add to the work of Christ on the cross, the provision of God for the spiritual life. And the result is that if you try to add anything, if you're trying to solve the problems in your life by faith plus anything, then God will not answer your prayers at all. That's the point of verse 7. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And what that points out is that the person who has faith plus is not unstable in just some ways, but unstable in all their ways. Now, what are these ten stress busters? Let's review them. First of all, there's confession of sin. The first thing that we have to do when we encounter adversity and trials is to ask the question, is this for divine discipline or is this suffering for blessing? Am I in fellowship or am I out of fellowship? Am I going to handle this in the power of the sin nature? Am I going to handle this in the power of the Holy Spirit? And the way to be restored to the filling of the Holy Spirit and recover His power for the spiritual life is 1 John 1, 9, confession, admission of sin to God the Father. The result of that is that we are filled with the Spirit. This is stress buster number two. Stress buster number three, then, is the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill is the glue that holds all of the other stress busters together. That is the rock that, I mean, that is the cement that that pulls them all together. It, It flows through every one of these and undergirds and strengthens them. The next stress buster is doctrinal orientation. We have to focus on the doctrine that God has provided. And as we learn that doctrine, we learn about His plan and policy for mankind. And that leads us to grace orientation, the fifth stress buster. Then we go to personal sense of eternal destiny. I think George touched on this this last week at the conference. And that's where we begin to understand that every decision we make today, everything we are today, is preparing us for eternity in heaven. You will be in heaven what you decide today. The level of maturity that you produce in your spiritual life today, the level of maturity that you reach in your spiritual life today, will be the level of maturity that you have when you come to heaven. Your capacity to enjoy heaven is going to be the result of your doctrine that you learn right here and now. The sad thing is there are so many believers that don't know anything about doctrine, don't know anything about what the Scripture teaches, that when they get to heaven they're probably not even going to be sure where they are because they don't even know anything about it. They have had just enough to trust Christ as their Savior, and that's it. Maybe they were saved for a while. Maybe they grew a little bit, and then they forgot about it and went negative to God, and they forgot all about it. And So when they die, they'll be surprised wherever they are. So that is the sixth Stress buster, a personal sense of your eternal destiny as you begin to realize more and more where you're headed and what you're training for, then that's going to impact the decisions you make today. Uh, Seven is a personal love for God the Father. Eight is unconditional love for all mankind. When we start handling the relational problems, 
that we have in this life, the people problems that we have by applying unconditional love for all mankind, then we're no, no longer going to be uh, upset, fragmented, reactionary when people do not act the way we think they ought to act or behave the way we think they ought to behave because our actions towards them are not dependent on who and what they are but on who and what Jesus Christ is and what God has done for us. Then the ninth problem-solving device or stress buster is inner happiness. And the tenth is occupation with Christ. These we will discuss in detail as we make our way through the epistle of James. Now we come to verse 9. And in verse 9 through 11, we are going to focus on grace orientation and one particular aspect of grace orientation, which is humility. Humility is defined as the absence of arrogance. The absence of arrogance and recognizing that everything you are is a result of God and what He has provided and not a result of your own efforts and your own energies. And that's quite a difficult thing for us to understand because we live in a society and in a culture that rewards us for our efforts and our hard work. We're taught to work hard. We work hard all week long to advance in our jobs, to be recognized, to perhaps get a promotion or a salary increase. We work hard in school so that we can make good grades, so that we can uh, reach a certain level in school, perhaps where we can have scholarships and go on to college and graduate school. And everything that we do on a day-to-day basis as part of our life and part of our culture is based on the concepts of rewards for hard work and effort and recognition of all that we do. Yet when we come to the spiritual life, it's just the reverse. The issue is not what we do. The issue is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we have a whole different set of dynamics that the spiritual life is based on. And so we have to come to an understanding of grace orientation. So let's just go over these three verses and get an overview of what they're all about. And then we'll take them apart verse by verse and look at the details of the exegesis. Verse 9, But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now, perhaps, if you read this for the first time and you don't understand a lot about the Scriptures, you might think that this is a a passage that praises poverty, praises the person who doesn't have much in terms of material possessions or material wealth, and is sort of a condemnation of the rich and the wealthy. Well, if you were to read it that way, you would be terribly mistaken because that is not the point of this passage. The Bible never uh, impugns anybody or, or... runs anybody down because of their wealth. In fact, some of the greatest believers in all of the Scripture were some of the wealthiest people in the world at their time. Men like Job, Abraham, think of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. Barnabas was also fairly wealthy, at least a successful businessman. And others have been prospered materially by the Lord, and that is not something that is in contrast to a sound spiritual position are growing spiritually. So don't make the mistake of thinking that this passage somehow glorifies uh, poverty and uh, criticizes being wealthy because you then you would miss the entire point of this passage. The issue here, first of all, is the details of life 
as instantiated by money. Could be anything. Maybe for you it's a social position. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's uh, having a particular kind of job or working in a particular position. But James uses the issue of money here probably because that's a problem with this particular congregation. We'll see that it is when we come to chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, that they do seem to have a problem with material issues and material wealth. But he's using money here as just one of the many details of life that people focus on and can get them completely distracted from spiritual issues. So the first thing we need to realize is the issue here is just the details of life. Secondly, the spiritual issue is humility and grace orientation versus arrogance and self-reliance. The issue is humility and grace orientation versus arrogance and self-reliance. The contrast is between the humble believer, that is the believer who lacks possession of any details of life. Here it's money. But it could be someone who doesn't have family, doesn't have friends, doesn't have social position, doesn't have a job, doesn't have a career, whatever it may be. It's the humble believer, the one who lacks any of the details of life versus the believer who has an abundance of the details of life, whether it's a, a family with five or six children, a wonderful wife, whether it's a social position, social status, whether it's wealth, money, home, uh, whatever it might be in terms of uh, the material details of life, this person is just, uh, that's the wealthy person, the person who has an abundance of the details of life. The one is being encouraged to not to focus on his lack of the details of life, but to glory in everything that he has in Christ. The other person, the, the one who is, has an abundance of the details of life, is told to put his focus not on all that he has because that comes from God. He has to have some grace orientation and humility in relationship to his possession of the details of life and physical blessing that that came from God and to focus again as the other person on who he is in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 then provides us with an illustration that uh, focuses on the test of adversity. The sun rises with a scorching wind. This is the attack of adversity that blows across the life of the, of the wealthy person who has the abundance of, of uh, material things, abundance of the details of life, and it withers the grass and its flower falls off. And because of this adversity, he loses all that he has and everything is destroyed as it happened with Job in in the uh, book of Job in the Old Testament where he lost his, his wealth, he lost his possessions, and ultimately he lost his, his children, and he lost his own personal health finally. He lost every, all the details of life were taken away from him, and the issue was would he still continue to trust God, still continue to apply the doctrine in his soul, or would he get mad at God, would he curse God, and just give up on God and react in arrogance and anger towards God, in bitterness and self-reliance. So this is the, um, the background here. How are you going to handle adversity when it takes away all the details of life from you and you're left with nothing? And this is, this is the illustration. So how do you handle that? That's what we're going to see. It begins with understanding the principles of grace orientation and humility. 
Let's look at the verse in detail. But let the brother of humble circumstances. Now, the use of the word brother here is very important throughout this epistle. Ha Adelphos. Nominative case, A-D-E-L-P-H-O-S. The brother. This is usually a term used in the New Testament of one believer to another. And the reason I keep emphasizing this, we go back to verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren. And then down here it talks about a, a brother of humble circumstances. So throughout this, James is writing to believers, to fellow Christians, and the subject is always issues in the Christian way of life. The issue is never coming to Christ. The issue is how are you going to handle these situations as a believer in the Christian life. This is going to be critical when we come to some of the problem passages in uh, the latter part of this chapter and in James chapter 2, which relate faith and works, that this is not talking about a believer versus an unbeliever situation. It's not talking about coming to salvation at the point of the cross. Remember, there are three stages to salvation. Phase number one is the cross, where we are justified. At this point, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase one, salvation. Salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. Phase two, salvation, is salvation from the power of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature. The sin nature that we possess one second after we are regenerated is the exact same sin nature we had one second before we were saved. Nothing happens at salvation to limit the power of that sin nature. Anything that we were capable of doing before we were saved, we're still capable of doing after we're saved. This is a very important point that the Lordship's gospel people have totally forgotten. They think that, well, once you're saved, you're just not going to be able to do certain things. You won't be able to commit adultery. You won't be able to steal or murder if you, if you commit those sins, or maybe they have some other sins. If you commit those sins or continue to commit those sins, then you weren't really saved. You didn't have saving faith. You might have said you believe in Jesus, but that's not real saving faith. And the issue is that they do not understand the nature of sin and the sinfulness of sin and the extent of sin in the person's life. And so they think that after salvation, something happens in regeneration to reduce or limit the power of the sin nature in the believer's life. But the only thing we're told in Scripture that can limit or reduce the power of the sin nature in the believer's life is the filling of the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God. Only under the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and by applying the principles of doctrine are we able to bring the uh, terrible power of the sin nature in our lives under control. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. He's a believer there, and he talks about how he doesn't do what he wants to do, and he does the things that he doesn't want to do. And I think every believer at some point can identify with Paul in that position. We're trying to grow, yet we're struggling with our, our sin nature and the temptation that we so easily succumb to. And we say, why is it that I continue to do this when I know I ought to do that? I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. And then in uh, 
Romans 8, he begins to talk about the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and that's the solution. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, plus the Word of God, Jesus said in his prayer to God the Father, Thy Word is truth, thy Word is doctrine, sanctify them, that's the spiritual life, phase two of sanctification, sanctify them by means of truth. So it is the, the Spirit of God plus the Word of God that enables us to control and limit the power of the sin nature. So phase one is salvation, uh, justification, salvation, saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is sanctification, salvation, where we are saved from the power of sin. And then in phase three, when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, this is called glorification, and it is where we are saved from the presence of sin. Because there will no longer be a sin nature. So there's phase one salvation, phase two salvation, and phase three salvation. And it's very important to distinguish the terminology when we come to Scripture passages that use the word saved. Just because it's the word saved does not mean that it has anything to do with justification at the cross. It may be related to phase two or phase three. And furthermore, it may not have anything whatsoever to do with phase one, phase two, or phase three. For the word saved or sozo in the Greek, S-O-Z-O, was an everyday word that meant deliverance. And you would also speak of physical illness as that if you were healed, you might say, I was saved. I was delivered, sozo. I was healed from that illness. So it had a lot of common everyday uses which you find in the New Testament as well. So just because you have the word saved, you have to ask the question in the passage, well what are we being saved from? Are we is it talking about the penalty of sin, the power of sin, or the presence of sin? So those are the three phases of salvation. And James is addressing these believers as brothers because he's emphasizing that we are all believers in God's family. And we have to remember that there are all kinds of believers. There are carnal believers, there are spiritual believers, there's wealthy believers, there's poor believers, there's educated believers and uneducated believers, there are sophisticated believers and unsophisticated believers, and there's all kinds in between. And you can't fit Christians into molds. You can't say that because I'm some way, other people experience ought to imitate mine. And that's one of the greatest problems that we face is we try to cram everybody into the same mold, and yet everybody's different. They have different talents, different abilities. God has, in His grace, given them different spiritual gifts and different measures of those spiritual gifts. So everybody needs to be the person that they are and the person that God means for them to be. Now, James, in this passage, takes one of the most superficial of all distinctions to make his point so that all those who would read his epistle from then on would be able to understand the issues. Just as now there were poor people and wealthy people in the New Testament time, and James uses this distinction to drive home the importance of grace orientation and humility under stress and under the I mean under adversity and under the attack of adversity, people who think that um, that you want to take wealth away from people because wealth in and of itself is evil both misread the scripture. The scripture says it is the love of money that is the root of all evil, not money 
that is the root of all evil. In fact, what would we do in spiritual life, in missions, in the ministry of the church, if it weren't for those people that God has blessed with material possessions and material wealth, who then in turn understand the principles of grace giving and uh, use that to support the local ministry of the church and missions and uh, all kinds of different ministries to provide for the uh, preaching and communication of the Word of God. There's always people, though, that come along and are jealous of those who have more than they have and who want to equalize society and promote uh, various forms of socialism. And socialism is always one of the greatest evils that pervades society. And today we have far too many people in public office, both at the state level and at the federal level, level, who basically operate on concepts of socialism, that we need to soak the rich, tax the rich, and take the money away from them and give it to other people, and usually it never gets to anybody else. And when you soak the rich, what you do is you destroy their ability to reinvest that money and to promote growth. And growth provides jobs. Growth provides the opportunities for other people to uh, to develop their skills. And it's very important that if people have the responsibility and run the risk to invest their capital and to expand their wealth, then they need to benefit from that. And it doesn't need to be taken away from them. And they don't need to be penalized because they have the courage and the gumption and the initiative to do that. When money is taken away by by the government under taxation, it destroys the economic lifeline and basis of a nation. So there's no basis in Christianity or in the Bible for socialism. You always have somebody that comes along and thinks there is, but there isn't. The Bible recognizes the importance of wealth in developing a, uh, a free market economy, and these principles are clearly outlined under the Mosaic Law. So James talks off, starts off, he says, let the brother of humble circumstances. This is the adjective. It could, should really be translated, but let the humble brother glory in his high position. The idea of humility here comes from the Greek word tapinos, which we're going to run into several times. Tapinos, T-A-P-E-I-N-O-S. Tapinos has the idea of uh, humility, of someone who is in a lowly position, someone who has an insignificant place in life, someone who has very little power or ability to advance themselves. And that's the idea here. This is a person, obviously, who has very little uh, to, in, on his own. He has very little finances, very little money, no possessions. And he is told in a command to glory in his high position. This is an interesting verb. Kaukaomai. Kaukaomai. K-A-U-C-H-A-O-M-A-I. Kaukaomai in the present active imperative. He is commanded. This is not an option. This is a mandate. That if you are someone who lacks the details of life, then this is a command to glory or boast or rejoice in something. That's the essence of this word. I like the idea of glorifying, glory, or rejoicing. Rejoice might be a better idea here. He is to rejoice in something. It takes us back to the main theme in verse 2, to count it all joy. 
He is to rejoice in his lack of the details of life and uh, rejoice in his high position in Christ. As believers, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the high place, in high places and in the heavenlies, and we have uh, more wealth than we can imagine in the spiritual dimension. I want to look at a couple of passages. Turn with me to Romans 8.17. Romans 8.17. Here we read that the Spirit Himself, starting in verse 16, Romans 8:16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our human spirit that we are children of God. This is a subjective testimony from God the Holy Spirit to us after we put our faith alone in Christ alone that we have been adopted into the family of God. That's our high position. That's what we are to glory in. We are now members of the royal family of God. And if children... Heirs. This is a very high position. In, in the Roman culture, if you were a child, you were not necessarily an heir. But if children, we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we are children of God and joint heirs with Christ. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Here we have a further development of the doctrine of adoption. Paul writes, And because you are sons, remember, for as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the children of God. At the point of salvation, we become and the word here is techna. We become techna, sons of God. It's a sort of a technical term, ladies. It doesn't mean that they have any sexual connotation there. It was a technical term under Roman law that meant that you had a legal position as heir. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the subjective uh, testimony confirmation of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ because of our position in the royal family of God. Now, one more passage to look at is in 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. There Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So the point here is that we have a new position and a new identity. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We have a vast array of spiritual assets. We are all spiritually wealthy. We are... All, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sons of God. We are in the royal family. The royal family of God, and we have a position as a royal priesthood. So we are now spiritual aristocracy. Royal family and royal priesthood, and we are heirs of God and joint heirs 
with Jesus Christ. This is phenomenal in terms of its implications for who you are. It has nothing to do with your material situation, the details of life that you enjoy or do not enjoy, or your circumstances in this life at all. It has everything to do with your spiritual position that is what you should be concerned about developing in light of eternity. So the focus for James is for the believer who lacks the details of life, focus on who you are in Jesus Christ and what God has provided for you at the cross. At the moment of salvation, God provides for the believer 40 different things that make up this vast array of spiritual assets. This is an array of a portfolio of weapons and provisions that God has given us so that we can face and handle any situation in life, so that we can grow to spiritual maturity, and so that we can be true victors in this spiritual warfare and angelic conflict that rages around us. Now let's go back to James chapter 1. So the believer who lacks the details of life is to focus on everything that he has in Jesus Christ. And, and he is to celebrate that. He is to rejoice in that. That's the thrust of the word, to glory in his high position. Let the, the lowly, insignificant believer rejoice and celebrate his high position in Jesus Christ because of divine grace. All that he has is because of Jesus Christ Verse 10, and let the rich man, that is the man who has an abundance of the details of life, rejoice in his humiliation. Now, if you look at your English, what you'll discover is that the word let and the word glory are in italics. You know why those words are in italics? Because they're not in the original language. They're not in the original Greek. What happens here is because of the previous sentence and the comparison, you have a stated verb, kaukaomai, in verse 9. And in his excitement, he has left out the main verb in verse 10 in the original, but you can supply it by bringing it down from from verse 10 to verse 11 because of the context. But it shows a little bit of the excitement and the enthusiasm of the writer at this point. He just says, the rich man in his humiliation. Let the, let the lowly brother rejoice in his high position, and the rich, the wealthy in the details of life, in his humiliation. What is his humiliation? What? And this is really a bad translation because there's a difference between being humble and being humiliated. Humiliated is often another way of arrogance. It's just going in the other direction where you put yourself down. And true humility sees yourself as you truly are. Not inflating yourself or deflating yourself. True humility focuses on who you truly are, sees yourself in in the framework of reality without being arrogant, either by blowing yourself up or puffing yourself up, or by uh, reducing yourself in terms of being insignificant and, and uh, self-flagellation and all the rest that goes with false, false humility. So the, the rich, the wealthy, and the man who possesses many of the details of life in his humiliation. Now that brings us to a very important...
doctrine of grace orientation. To understand grace orientation, we must realize that there are two major categories of grace. Category number one is saving grace. Category two is post-salvation grace. What happens at saving grace? At saving grace, God the Father in eternity past recognized that the greatest problem man would face were sins. That all the sins of the human race, past, present, and future, every single sin you will ever commit, even the sins that you don't think you'll ever commit, and when you commit them they will shock you to the very core of your being, every single one of those sins was poured out on the cross. Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins on the cross and God the Father poured those sins out on Him and Jesus paid the price in full. And when it was done, He said, It is finished. It is complete. There is nothing left for man to do. Man adds nothing to what Christ did on the cross. Man must come to the cross with his hands empty. He must come in true humility, recognizing that there is nothing in man. There's no good works. There's no good deeds. There's no uh, talent. There's no wealth. There's no position. There's no social status. There's no detail of life that gives us or gains for us approbation from God. When we come to the cross, we must leave it all behind and realize that we do nothing. Jesus Christ does everything. This is the beginning of true humility. We understand in grace, grace is God's policy towards the human race, that God does all the work and man simply accepts it. God does all the work, man accepts it. In true humility, man recognizes that there's nothing he can do to add to his salvation. So the rich man glories in his humility because he realizes there's nothing he can add that at the cross, God provided everything for him. Now what happens at the cross is when God the Father poured out all of our sins on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was perfectly righteous, had all of our sins imputed to Him. This is what we're studying on Sunday morning. He who knew no sin, because He was plus R, became sin for us. Our sins, all of our minus R, was imputed to Him on the cross. What happens at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, relying on nothing on our own, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and imputes that to the believer. So at the moment of salvation, it's not that you become good. It is that now God God has credited to your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God up here looks down on you, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is what you are clothed with. Because of that, God then pronounces you justified. Before the Supreme Court of Heaven, you are declared just. Perfectly just because, remember, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, motivated by the love of God and expressed by the grace of God. 
And the application of that, what the righteousness of God condemns, rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the love of God provides a solution through the grace of God, which is the cross. So the righteousness of God up here looks down on man now and sees that he has perfect righteousness. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses as a motivated by the love of God and expressed through His manifold grace. So this brings us to the first category of post-salvation grace, which is logistical grace. Now, logistics is that science and art of supplying the physical needs of a military unit out on the field. We are a military unit as a believer out in the field doing combat in the angelic War And God has said that he is going to provide for us everything we need for our physical and spiritual sustenance in the battle. He is going to provide food, shelter, and clothing. And he is going to provide Bible doctrine so that we can grow. He's going to supply the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, have spiritual power to understand and apply doctrine. And he's going to provide the Word of God so that we can apply it. Now, the perfect righteousness of God looks at you and sees your perfect righteousness. And so then the justice of God is going to bless you, not because of who you are or what you have done, but because you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not because as a believer you've decided to apply doctrine. You've decided to, I'm going to give money to the church. I'm going to teach in Sunday school. I'm going to go on a missions trip. And so God will bless me. God never blesses us on the basis of what we do. God blesses us because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hold your place here in James and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This was one of those passages. In fact, Matthew 6.33 is the basis for a nice little chorus that I used to love to sing. And then I realized most people didn't understand the verse. So I quit singing it. Verse 25. We'll wrap up with this passage. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. What do we have here? Logistical issues, the provision of the physical needs for the believer. For this reason, do not be anxious for physical needs. Why? Look at the birds, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into their barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. They don't have to work for it. God just provides it for them as part of his grace. Verse 29, Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Now he's going to drive home the point. Verse 30, But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will he not do much more for you, O men of little faith? In other words, if God's going to take care of the plants of the field and the birds of the sky, how much more will God take care of your basic needs 
if you're his child. Don't, conclusion, verse 31, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we clothe ourselves? Don't worry about the details of life related to physical sustenance, because this is covered under the category of logistic grace. God is going to supply that for you as a believer because you possess the perfect righteousness of God. He's going to take care of your basic needs. But what are you to do? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. This is the issue. How do you seek His righteousness? Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ at salvation. That's when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. Because you possess His righteousness, you seek it, by receiving Christ as your Savior, and then all of these blessings of logistical grace will be automatically supplied to you because you are a child of God and you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is not an issue for the spiritual life. The issue, once you're a believer, is not to seek His righteousness. You already have it. You can't get any more of it. You are given a full measure of the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the moment you put your faith and trust in Him. Let's go back to James chapter 1. James 1, let the rich man glory not in the fact that he has this abundance of the details of life because he can easily lose those, but let him glory in his humility because he doesn't have this on his own effort. He has this, everything he has, all the details of life that he enjoys are the result of the grace of God. God has supplied them on the basis of who and what He is, on the basis of who and what Jesus Christ is, not on the basis of who and what the individual believer is. But how is this person going to handle it when he loses those details of life? And that will be our subject next week as we learn how to take grace orientation and the doctrine of humility and apply that to those situations, those adversities, when we lose the details of life that we've come to put so much store in, and all of a sudden they're taken away from us, as they were with Job, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word. We thank You for Your grace, how magnificent it is, how deep and rich it is, that You have supplied everything for us, and that You have promised to continue to supply all of our logistical needs, all of our physical needs, all of our spiritual needs through the teaching of your word, through Bible doctrine, and that you have given us all of this, that we may have everything related to life and the spiritual life, First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, and that we come to understand this through applying your magnificent promises, the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, to that the Holy Spirit would recall these things to our minds and that as we face the adversities and tests in the coming days, that we would realize that that's our opportunity to apply the doctrine stored in our soul, that we would recall it and that we would, reply, uh, would apply it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.